Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we uh, pray in line with what James says, that the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason. And we see, Father, that your wisdom that comes from above leads to a life of fruitful righteousness. And Father, we recognize we need that. Um, We fall short of it. And so we ask, even this morning, as we consider your word, would your spirit do the work in us to lead us to be a fruitful people? For your kingdom's sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know uh, for those of you who follow sports, uh, many of you know it doesn't matter if it's uh, baseball, if it's football, if it's basketball. You are aware that there is a lot of effort in practice uh, that goes into becoming a professional sports player. Um, Before you are able to put on that jersey, you must work tremendously hard and you must put forth a lot of effort for the scouts to be those who see you at the practice, whether it's in high school or college, doesn't matter, but they they must recognize here's one who's willing to show up early to practice and after the practice is willing to hang around uh, so that you will be called. And, And there's a sense of when you put on the jersey, I've earned this, I've done well to earn this jersey. And it's pictured also in a story about Joe DiMaggio, the famous baseball player in which, you know, um, he's well known for just being this amazing hitter. And how much of this is myth or not, I don't know. But the story goes that a reporter was over at his house and they said, well, Joe, I mean, what's it like being this amazing, you know, hitter? You are probably the world's most natural born hitter. He says, come with me. And he takes the reporter down into the basement where he turns off the light, grabs a baseball bat, and begins to call out these pitches where he says, uh, curveball inner left and, and sloper right outer. And, and, and he's calling all of these pitches and he's swinging the bat for each one. And then he grabs a piece of chalk and he goes up to the wall in the basement and makes a tick mark. And then he flips on the, the light and the reporter sees thousands of these tick marks going. And then he says to the reporter, don't you ever call me a natural born hitter again. And it became clear. No, he had been practicing. He had earned this ability and he had worked hard to have the skill to be able to swing like this and do so good. And you know, the truth is some people view Christianity a bit like that. It's a competitive sport. In which all one needs to do is work hard, practice, do the right things. And if you get better and get better, eventually God will reward you with the jersey. 
He will say, well done, you've worked really hard. And yet the first three chapters of Ephesians have been quite portraying the opposite of this. Um, It is not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy that he saved us. Ephesians chapter 2, by grace through faith you have been saved. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. If we keep the sports analogy for a moment, here's what it would be more akin to. It would be like you are out in your driveway, well, this was me, dribbling and mostly fumbling the ball and then shooting and, and declaring to your daughter, nothing but net, as it's nothing but air. And, you know, you laugh and you joke, but then a picture, a, a black SUV pulls up and a guy rolls down the window and throws a jersey to you. I mean, you're horrible, but he throws a jersey to you and says, put this on tomorrow, you're playing in the pros. And by the way, as you're going to go play, you need to play as the worthy calling that that jersey calls you to. You've been given it. Now, go play to be worthy of the calling that you've been given. I think that's more akin to what we see here this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and actually the second half of this book. Help you see where we're at. Help you get a lay of the land. If you've not been with us, We have been looking and examining the first three chapters of Ephesians in which it primarily contained teaching, doctrine, uh, what we believe. And now we're turning and we are seeing the second half of the book of Ephesians in which we will be looking at more of how how do we live out this calling? You've been given the jersey. Now, how is it you're supposed to go out there and practice and and move? Um, The first half of this book had very few what we call imperatives. Imperatives are those... It's a good, it's a word you need to get under your belt. Imperatives are these commands in scripture. Words that in, especially in Greek will have embedded a, of oughtness to it. You must, you go do this. Go live, you, I urge you, Paul will say. And in the first three chapters, there was only one imperative. It was found in chapter two, verse 11, where he says, remember. So that word there is an imperative. You are commanded to go remember. Remember what? Remember that you, Jews and Gentiles, formerly were separated, but now God has done a great work of bringing you together. Now, in the second half of Ephesians, we're going to hear 39 imperatives. So, 39 times the amount of imperatives in the second half of this letter. So, that's amazing, and it's going to help us see where we're going, and we will continue to see that even within this, Paul, Paul's going to continue to say, even as I tell you how you're to work out your calling now, See that it's embedded in the calling. In other words, conduct always follows calling. You are to live out the identity that's been given to you by God. And even as he, as he does this, we'll see that he doesn't leave our calling. And we're going to look at this morning in, in two ways here. We'll see the manner and the means of our unity in verses 1 through 3. And then we'll see the basis of our unity in verses 4 through 6. And so first, look with me at the manner and means of our unity. This was, uh, we'll begin here at verse 1, where he makes the major turn in the book. Chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, here in verse 1, we're broadly exhorted to, to live a life worthy of our calling, and as Paul begins this section, he begins with that word, therefore, and as I've been trying to hint at and show you, he's picking up on saying, therefore, because of everything I've told you, chapters one, two, and three, therefore, you are to walk 
in a particular manner. Now, walking for the rest of the book in Ephesians, this is a metaphor that he will maintain. He will use this several times again. It's a metaphor that we must get under, uh, keep this in mind as he's saying, this is a metaphor that you, the Christian, are portrayed as doing. Walk then in a manner that is worthy, that will match the calling that you've been called to. So just as you, some of you moms and, and you dads here, you, you may grab your kids and you may say to them, look, I want you to, to live out in accordance with the name that you've been given here. Now, this, in this family, we're not a family of pigs. Ergo, you don't get to live like a pig. No, you, you're to live in a manner of the worthiness of the family that you've been called into. And, and this is a particular struggle because, uh, this may work easier on the front of the of the children in the house, but it can be more difficult in a church context where we say, you've been given a, a calling, now walk in this. And it doesn't, sadly for churches and for Christians, in some cases it doesn't take long before they put that aside. Uh, a recent story I heard about a church that had a particular split in which um, the you know half the members went one direction, half went the other, and then uh, there there was a battle over the building, who was going to get the building, and so it went to the courts. The courts said this is a bunch of nonsense and kind of threw the whole thing out. And later, somehow, it had been discovered in the middle of all this that this all came about this horrible split because an elder went over to a family's house for dinner, and one of the children got a larger slice of ham than the elder had. Can you believe it? And, and, and so, you know, we, we see Christians, sometimes they're not acting like their Lord. I mean, it doesn't at times take too much to create a major conflict. Even a small slice of ham just might do it. And so if I come over to your house, I hope that you give me a larger slice of ham. No, I'm just kidding. This is why Paul carries out in detail what walking out our calling looks like. I mean, because you're saying, okay, you're giving me the jersey. You called me to this call. I'm supposed to go play now and do well. What does this look like? And it's it's really parsed out for us in verses 2 through 3 where he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager there's an imperative, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here then we get the, the manner which we are to walk. Paul has called us to walk in a particular manner that is worthy. What is that manner? The walk is not a, a arrogant, prideful strut. No. The Christian path before us is described with certain manners, certain attitudes that the Christian exudes. And it seems as though these first two are somewhat related. There's overlapping uh, usages of gentleness and humility. Uh, they are manners with which Jesus himself uh, exhibited with perfection. Jesus himself, wasn't he clearly humble? I mean, Philippians chapter 2 tells us very clearly and plainly, Jesus was a humble person, leaving all of heaven and earth to come and be born in the ditch. But also, as many of you have been spending time in Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, not only was Jesus perfectly exuding humility, but he had this gentleness about him. In fact, his very heart, one of the few places where we hear about the heart of Jesus, he says, my heart is gentle and lowly. And 
we must keep the, these in mind here because some of you, and you may struggle, you may say, I, I view God, I picture God as the angry man upstairs. The one who's just looking to throw a lightning bolt down upon you. And yet, this is not the picture. So if you're younger in faith, or if you have yet to really consider Jesus, you need to have a full-orbed view of him. You need to fully picture Jesus as he truly is. You need to see him in one sense. He is frighteningly, terrifyingly powerful. Here's a man who snaps his finger, and the weather, the storm, stops. Here's a man who tells a thousand demons, get out of him, and they run screaming for the woods. And at the same time, here's the person who says to the little girl, Talitha Kumi, honey, wake up, wake up. And she comes to life. Here's the same Jesus, knowing that he has the power to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. He shows up knowing that his friend Lazarus has died and he weeps. He cries. He knows he's about to heal him. And yet the fact that his friend would die brings him to the brink of tears. And when he sees Jerusalem rejecting him, here's the same Jesus who's crying out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Friends, I bring this to mind. I want you to consider the humility and the gentleness of Christ. Why? Because the one who wears Jesus' jersey is the one who must reflect the one who's given the jersey. We must reflect our Savior, our Lord. And, and some of us, if we're honest, we just don't have that word. Like Joe DiMaggio, don't you dare call me a natural-born, humble, gentle dude. <laughs> no. I've been working at this. And even as we're working, we're recognizing this is a work of the Spirit in and through us as we continue to submit ourselves, reflect upon the gospel, let that be our motivation for living a humble life. We mirror our Lord in this. We're to walk this walk in which we're called. You believe in Jesus, you've been made alive by his grace, so live a life of grace for others. Recognize there are areas in your life you may be deficient in humility, deficient in gentleness. And, and friends, rarely will someone just walk up to you and just say, hey, you know what? You're not very gentle. <laughs> You're not very humble. It, it's rare, isn't it, that somebody will do that. Oftentimes, it's those closest to us. And very rarely, even then, will they come and just say, you know, you really struggle with being gentle. Your spouse or maybe your children come along and say, you know, at times you can just be a spiky pine cone, you know, and we, we need them to come along and tell us that. And if you occasionally get that, that's a red flag to you to say, ah, if my own spouse sees it, surely every el- everyone else is knowing and they see, I struggle with this. This is an area I need to grow in. And, and Ephesians chapters one, two, and three need to be the fuel to call you to live in, in patience and humility and gentleness with those around you. For the man or woman who fails to be gentle or humble with, uh, with those around them, I'm not entirely sure that they really understand just how gentle and humble the Lord has been with them. Friends, just let that percolate for a moment in your heart. If you struggle to be gentle and patient and humble, do you really get the gospel? Do you really understand what your Lord has done for you. And by the way, gentleness, it's not to be confused here with weakness. This is not a call on Christians to, or Christian men to be weak, to be soft, to cave in on issues. That's not it at all. It does mean 
as we are considering others in love and communicating and relating and sometimes putting a strong foot down, but we do it with love. We do it with gentleness. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humans never need to be informed there are such things as pride, harshness, anger, and division. You don't need to be told that exists or that you can live that way. But we do need to be reminded, as Paul does, informed that we should be gentle, humble, and patient. And at times, I myself, I recognize, I am impatient. I struggle with that. I can be impatient with other people who are impatient. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I tell myself, I'll say things like, today is the day. Today is the day that I shall live in patience. I think about myself and I say, when other people look on Thomas for today, they'll say, wow, he is a, 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 an extraordinary example of patience. And then an email comes in and my spouse says something, something in the house breaks and I'm too quick to say tomorrow will be the day that I will live in patience and praise God. His mercies are new every morning, but the Christian is called to walk a life of patience. And I don't stop and reflect on this enough. I I, I realized as I was working this week, just thinking through, this this is one of the fruit of the spirit. This is a defining quality of love in 1 Corinthians 13. You know it. Love is patient. And I notice in Christian circles regarding impatient people, we can say things like, well, that's just the way that person is. They're just an impatient person who just kind of bites other people's heads off at times. And, 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 and I think at times in the Christian community, we can try to pass those things off. And, and, and I would just encourage you, that if you're kind of the type of person who at times can say, well, that's just who I am. Deal with it. You need to deal with what Paul is telling you this morning. The life of the Christian. If you've been given this jersey and now you've been told to get out there, and of course it won't be perfect, but as you get out there living this walk, walking this walk of Christian faith, friends, don't, don't miss. This is a life that calls you to walk with patience. Rather than being a bull in a china shop, we are to instead choose words of grace to correct others around us. We are to choose right, timely manners to walk with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And and this is all a sense in which we go, okay, this is not something that we can put off and say, I will try and tackle this later. It's an urging. Paul says this here. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then see this verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And I thought this is interesting because he doesn't say create. He doesn't say build up. Maintain is the word that's used here. In other words, this is something that's been given to you. Uh, I need to maintain my car. There's work that needs to be done to keep it running well. I'm not building this thing up from the ground. So, church, we've been given something by Christ through his spirit. Maintain it. Work on it so that it keeps up its peace. It's well working out. This bond of peace between us. Our unity, then, is not really an optional thing for believers. And Church on the Mountain, I hope you you see that as a church, we have places we need to go. We have places that we're going to need to get to over the next year, five years, ten years, that may be challenging for us. And so, we're going to need to work to maintain 
our unity together as we step forward together in love. With whatever God has for us as we walk together, we will have to see that the manner and means of our peace will be this unity that we have and we must maintain it. And now we've come to recognize, if we've been seeing verses 1 through 3, what is the, the manner and means, now we're going to look at the basis, the foundation of this unity in verses 4 through 6. So read with me again. I want to bring these back to your mind. Verses 4 through 6, where Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if you were to say, Thomas, you've really kind of wandered this morning to and fro. I, what is it you're really trying to get at this morning? I, I think I'd want to put it like this. I'd want to say the oneness of the church necessitates that we walk together in that oneness. I might put it like this. The, the one God in salvation that brought us together will be what keeps us together. What is it that in verses one through three can be and will be worked out in the church on the mountain. Why is it that these verses will be worked out? Well, it's only because of what is true in verses four through six. Because of the emphasis that is emphasized there. What is that? Well, in a couple of weeks, we are about to adventure uh, into a diverse number of giftings. We will see that in a few, in a couple of weeks here. There are you know, ways in God's design that we are unique and different from each other in different ways we serve the Lord. Um, and here, though, the basis for our diverse giftings springs out of this unified relation to these elements here. And I'm going to cover these in a moment here, but it is striking how there is a sevenfold repetition of one. I don't know if you noticed that as I was reading through that. The one, 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 one. And there's seven. Now, Paul... You know, Paul, he could have come up with 10. He could have come up with 12. But I think he came up with seven for a reason. I think it's seven to help us see the complete oneness of this. We are a unified one in Christ. So we see the church body, the spirit we have, the hope, the Lord, the faith, the baptism, and the Father are all one. And hopefully as we take each of these in turn, you will see that each of these build upon the full picture. I mean, much like a loaf of bread, If you get one of the ingredients out, and oftentimes with bread, there is about seven ingredients, but if you miss one, the loaf falls flat or it doesn't taste right or something's off and you need all of them to come together. And, and I believe that that's what we see here. This one of these come, uh, each one of these coming together to build up this. And we begin by seeing the body. The body has been discussed back in chapter two at verse 16, where we read that he might reconcile us both, meaning Jews and Gentiles in God or to God in one body. How would he do that? Well, it's through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. So we have one body, one body of Christians through the one spirit. And considering how Paul has spoken of the spirit thus far, thus far, we see that the spirit has played a tremendous role. Consider the spirit for a moment and how this interweaves and why this is so important. This is only up to this point. We had the sealing of the Spirit in chapter 1, verse 13. We have been given access to the Father via the Spirit, chapter 2, verse 18. While simultaneously we became the dwelling place of His Spirit, dwelling with us. 
And we are strengthened not by our own might, but by the Spirit. Verse 16 of chapter 3. And the Spirit is what unites us in peace. Chapter 4 that we just read at verse 3. So the Spirit's role in all of this is critical. There's one Holy Spirit. And this one Spirit leads us to the one hope. In the context, this is not merely just wishful thinking about something, but this is the content of the gospel. And if we think about the hope that we have, it goes beyond just this momentary life. The the hope extends into the future. We think of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and they shall be changed. So our hope, then, is not just in generic salvation, but in the resurrection. It's anchored in what happened with our Lord. One Lord, who is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ here. With the Spirit mentioned, and as we'll see in a moment here, the Father mentioned, Lord here, I believe, is referring to Jesus. Um, And the reason I believe this is because just previously to this Uh, Jesus is mentioned as Lord. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 11, and this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so even with this repetition of one, 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 we got the triune Godhead here, the Spirit, the Lord, the Son, and the Father. The one Lord in which we have our one faith leading to the one baptism. Now here the question when we think of Baptism here is, the question is raised, is this in reference to water baptism or is this the baptism of the Spirit, meaning receiving the gift of the Spirit? Well, I would uh, suppose with you it seems unnecessary to separate them because in the context, I think Paul is trying to sort of sweep in everything. So this would include our uh, spiritual baptism and our physical baptism. This is interesting here because Paul is Possibly composing or contextualizing a creed. Now, you need to recall that confessions and creeds are summary statements of what we believe the Bible teaches. So that Paul does this with uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16. We we read there a, a, a confession where he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated in the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Um, You know, when I was younger, I often naysayed uh, confessions and creeds because I I felt like, well, isn't that a Catholic thing? Or I don't need anything. I just have my Bible. But then I began to see there's, in Christian history, there has been, even with the apostles, they had their own forms of confession where they're saying, here's a summary statement that can be used to say, I I want to just make a very tight summary of the most core things that we believe. Now, we can argue and disagree about secondary or tertiary issues, but if we as Christians want to say, here's where we're kind of planting our flag and where we're going to say, this is where we uh, agree and, and where we will not argue or debate in order to be a Christian, it involves these things. I think Paul is somewhat doing something similar here with the seven ones that he is highlighting these seven ones to say, this is what we confess. This is our kind of our creed, much like we might recite the Apostles' Creed. Some people believe here, and the history is a little bit fuzzy, but some people believe that 
that this original seven ones that Paul had here was actually used as a litmus test for baptism. In other words, if you'd like to be baptized, we just want to know, do you affirm, do you agree with these ones? Do you agree with the the one body, the one spirit, the one Lord, the one faith, the one spirit, the one, um, did I miss anything? One of the ones, all the ones, the seven ones. Did do you, do you agree to these? And a person would say, yes, I do. Okay. Well, upon your profession of faith, we baptize you. I think this is a good moment to just pause and say, if you have yet to be baptized, this is actually a good place to consider, do you believe this? Would you affirm there is the triune God of heaven, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that he saved his people by grace through the one faith, and that that is the content of your hope, and that Scripture says that just as water baptism pictures your physical bodies going down into the water uh, dirty and so coming up cleansed by Christ, can you see that that is the picture of what his spirit has applied to your soul? Do you believe that God then has done this to bring about a united one body in Christ, his church, made up of all peoples? Friend, if you're here with us this morning and you have yet to obtain this peace from God by clinging to the one, the seven ones, I believe Jesus is calling you this morning. And so if you sense his spirit calling you this morning, do not resist. There will not always be tomorrow. So today, speak with a Christian after service here. Today, pull me aside. If you want more and want to discuss and and consider, I, I think I believe these seven ones. I believe what Paul is confessing here. And if you do, then you are adhering to the gospel of Christ. And I just want to quote to you Delmar from the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where Delmar, he goes and he's baptized and then he, he comes out and he goes, come on in, boys, the water is fine. <laughs> in Paul's piecing of all of this together, all of these elements make up a people with a calling, a calling to walk in love with gentleness, humility, and patience. And when the churches fail to do this, we actually fail to be the church. Um, let me paint the picture of what this looks like. I foolishly one time decided I was going to take about 12 teenagers. We were going to be going on this backpack trip about 25 to 30 miles. And I think some of these teenagers probably hadn't gotten off the couch in 12 years. And so I'm out there with them and, you know, we're going along and I'm ambitious. I have all these visions of what this thing's going to be like and we're going to go up and, and, uh, you know, have a great time. And so I'm marching up ahead. I'm barking back orders to them behind me and I'm, I keep going on. I'm thinking I'm, next thing I know, I'm kind of envisioning the fire, the feast, the tent set up and then us heading up to even capture and summit some other small peaks in the area. And, oh, this, this is going to be amazing. And I looked back and I realized I'm alone because they had all fallen behind me. And so I go back and I discover there's bickering going on. There is division that's happened. They're not united. And I realized this is my fault. I, 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 have, to, I have to, you know, kind of fall on my sword here. And so I have to re, re-realize the goal of this whole trip was not for me to have my epic adventure. The goal was for all of us in unity to get where we needed to go. And so... One kid who clearly his blood sugar has completely crashed, I gave him an apple, and next thing you know, he sprang back to life. Another kid, he'd put his foot in a creek, and so his sock was wet, and so we got out dry socks, got him changed so he, his blisters would stop forming. 
Another kid who had way too much weight, we ended up having to disperse the weight. And then a, a, a mom shows up and, and she had sweet, you know, words that were uplifting and encouraging. She's talking to all the guys and gals. And next thing you know, our spirits are, are somewhat revived and we're able to con- continue on. And it just was such a good picture to me that everybody working together to get the united group to the destination. And that, that there, that's the bond of peace that we had as we did that was what enabled the trip to be a tremendous success and joy and a good memory. And here's my thinking about our church. The basis of our unity here is embedded in the fact that we belong to the one God and the one church. And the means of our walking out is kept if you and I will maintain the humility, gentleness, and patience so that we are people who walk in love and, as verse 3 says, are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Church, we're not walking in circles. We're not walking alone. We're walking together. We must stick together in the bond of peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we cry out to you and say, Lord, at times we have selfishly been at it for ourselves. We have been quick to sow words of division. We have been swift to, to make ourselves known and to put others down or to force our own preferences. And Lord, we know for us to get where we need to go as a church, it will involve us having a, a, a deep-seated bond of peace. So keep our fingers on what is central. And so I pray, by your Spirit, would you do that work in us? And even as we put on our jerseys, Lord, recognizing we're not really worthy of these jerseys, but we pray that you would give us an ability to, to walk in a manner that is worthy of them. And that that would be for your glory, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.